0: It's the Media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. We are ready with your daily impeachment report. But first, let me say, welcome to the podcast. We have a lot of other things we're going to get to here. COVID-19, President Trump uh, battling COVID last year. Bruce Springsteen, the head of the Japanese Olympics. There's a whole lot of stuff going on. The entire world doesn't stop just because of the Senate trial. Uh, also, I hope you're going to have a good weekend coming up. I will gently remind you that Media Buzz... Airs uh, Sunday on Fox at 11 Eastern. Hope you get a chance to catch that. But I want to start by talking about the trial because I've been glued to this thing. And I have to say candidly, uh, I think the Democrats should have ended their case, their presentation. at the end of Wednesday, they had two very strong days, Wednesday in particular, because that was the day, as I recapped on yesterday's podcast, when they showed the never before seen security camera footage, body camera footage. We saw what the siege looked like from inside the Capitol. It was extraordinarily emotional. It was extraordinarily effective. They could have ended on a high note. Instead, they stretched out for another day. It's not that I'm saying, you know, that this needs to be over yesterday. Uh, but i found most of yesterday's arguments to be kind of a rehash you heard some of the same quotes you heard some of the same arguments um, there were a few other things we'll get to and there was a and and, and i just think that there's an effort here to uh, it's a kitchen sink approach at this point because there's only one article of impeachment And there's an effort here to bring in every bad thing they can possibly say about, as they're calling him, Donald John Trump. You notice how when you're a defendant, suddenly you've got three names. I mean, nobody called him Donald John Trump uh, during his presidency. Uh, Interesting little side note there. But there was a moment in the hearing when I realized that this is, in fact, a TV show, that it's been packaged as a TV show with video and graphics and pacing. Um, And that came when they played some actual news clips from real TV shows. You know, they've got the big monitor there and it mostly been reserved for um, the the chilling and heartbreaking footage of the violence at the Capitol. uh, But also, you know, various uh, snippets from things that Trump has said since the election, uh, things he said about violence, things he said at the rally. But there suddenly there were a bunch of TV interviews with former Trump officials, Mick Mulvaney, H.R. McMaster, John Bolton. And they were all saying, uh, you know, this was terrible, the president shouldn't have done this, Uh, this was really bad, he went too far. And I was thinking, you know, in a court of law, which this most assuredly is not, this would never be allowed. Who cares what these people think? I mean, as a journalist, I care. Uh, In terms of the media coverage, I care. But if the 100 senators have to decide whether or not former President Trump is guilty of inciting violence, of fomenting an insurrection at the Capitol, the fact that Mulvaney or Bolton thinks it's bad means nothing. I mean, it's it's hearsay. It's just a couple of people's opinions. Now, if there were witnesses and somebody who was in the White House at the time, Mark Meadows, you name it, uh, had real-time conversations with Donald Trump about what was going on, then that would certainly be admissible. But none of these people at the time that they said these things, I I guess Mulvaney technically was the uh, envoy or an envoy to Northern Ireland, but he wasn't, you know, in the White House every day. He was no longer the White House chief of staff talking to Donald Trump. And so that's when it hit me that this is a television show. Uh, It's designed for the 21st century. In fact, there's a certain irony here that the former reality TV president, that the guy who spent 14 seasons on The Apprentice was basically being tried in his own medium with a television show. So why would you do that? You don't do that to get a conviction, and look, everybody knows the game here. Uh, All the journalists know, all the politicians know, all of you listening, watching, reading at home, you all know that probably by this weekend, the Senate will vote to acquit President Trump for the second time in his second impeachment trial. Uh, because you need 17 Republican senators to defect to get that two-thirds majority. I don't even think that's close to happening. I think all the test votes have made that clear. So instead, so why are the Democrats putting on uh, this television extravaganza? Uh, Obviously, to some degree, they are trying Donald Trump in the court of public opinion. But really, they're attempting to try him in the history books. They are putting together this strategy— uh, using the most powerful and dramatic video they can find. And some of the House managers are uh, very eloquent and have made very good cases. Uh, we'll hear today, maybe you've already heard this by the time this podcast drops, uh, from the Trump defense lawyers who have had no time at all in the last couple of days as the prosecutors, which is to say the House managers, have made their case. But they are playing for history. They want to discredit Trump and discredit Trumpism forever. Now, in the more short term, would they like to diminish uh, the former president as a political force in the midterm elections? Of course. Uh, is some of this personal? Yeah, it's personal on the most visceral level. They lived through that nightmare on Capitol Hill on January 6th. Uh, they Most of them were in the Capitol building. So when they're watching all these videos of rampaging criminals and thugs and people with stun guns and baseball bats, you know, it's... It's personal. It's shocking. It's it, it, it stirs up all kinds of emotions. But that's the secondary goal. The main goal is to control the narrative. Uh, what would be said about Donald Trump 100 years from now? Now, if you'd asked me a few days ago, I would have said, well, the first lie would be only president in American history to be impeached twice. But now I think he will be, partially as a result of this televised trial, inextricably linked with the siege at the Capitol on January 6th, 2021. That's the point of the show. That is the point of playing all this video. That is the point of all the outrage rhetoric to try to discredit Trump forever. Now, um, you know, look, there's not only one version of history, but, you know, scholars are still arguing about Washington and Hamilton and Adams and Jefferson and Madison, not to mention all of the modern presidents and sometimes presidents reputations, Harry Truman, for example, Dwight Eisenhower, not so great uh, at the time that they leave office. I mean, Eisenhower was relatively popular, but he was seen as kind of a weak president, uh, can come back. But the Democrats want their version and the media want the same version since the media openly now attacking Trump every single day, openly embracing impeachment, openly rooting for conviction. Most journalists, pundits, anchors, there's just no question about it. They want this version to be in the school textbooks. That's what they want, whether it happens is a whole other question. And so there is a level on which this is just grand political theater. Now, if we were in a few votes of conviction and this was actually um, the fate of Donald Trump to go down as possibly the first convicted president, convicted in the impeachment sense, uh, in our country's history, it would be a different story. But impeachment is a partisan process. It's a political process. Uh, It is not an accident that Republican presidents have been impeached uh, when Democrats have had majorities in the House and that uh, Bill Clinton, uh, the Democrat, was impeached when the Republicans had the majority in the House. You try to make it bipartisan, but often it's very partisan. In fact, uh, we learned uh, yesterday that three of the Republican senators had a meeting. With Trump's defense lawyers, so they don't make any bones about it—they're openly coordinating. Oh, what are you going to do? Probably giving them advice. Uh, you know, they're supposed to be 100 impartial jurors. I'm not saying the Democrats are impartial by any stretch of the imagination. It is a partisan process. It was designed by the framers to be a partisan process. I also saw yesterday that I, I don't know about the first day. The second day, the ratings were 12 million people, 12 million people watching on TV. Uh, in a way, you know, after we've just had a Super Bowl with 92 million people, that doesn't sound you know, like it's dominated the country, but it's daytime television, folks. People have jobs, uh, they have kids, they have lives. Uh, 12 million uh, total is a heck of a lot more than ordinarily are watching uh, television during the daytime hours. So that's where that stands. Now, the Washington Post has a story uh, talking about Mike Pence. And, you know, one of the things that was most stunning it's one thing to know about it, to read about it, to even hear people interviewed about it. It's another see- thing to see the then vice president of the United States and his family being hustled down a staircase trying to get them to safety in an undisclosed location while these thugs and criminals and insurrectionists and rioters and lunatics are roaming the halls, some of them shouting, hang Mike Pence. So the Washington Post has a story this morning, mounting evidence emerging uh, during Trump's impeachment trial indicates Trump may have been personally informed that Vice President Mike Pence was in physical danger during the siege, just moments before denigrating him on Twitter. Uh, So Trump's decision to tweet that Pence lacked courage Uh, and this tweet was sent apparently just after the VP had been rushed off the Senate floor underscores how he delayed taking action to stop his supporters as they ransacked the Capitol. The new piece of information here is a phone call uh, that President Trump had with the new Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville and Tuberville told reporters Uh, that during that brief call, I said, Mr. President, they just took our vice president out. They're getting ready to drag me out of here. I got to go. Now, it's not 100% clear. Was this um, before the tweet, after the tweet? It's hard to totally nail it down. At the same time, you know, Trump himself, by invoking uh, Pence's name during the rally speech, I hope Mike has the courage to do what's right. Um, did jeopardize his vice president. His, you know, probably the person, other than Melania, Mike Pence, probably the person most loyal to Donald Trump for four years. And there was just simply no question that his life was seriously in danger. Now, do I believe that uh, Donald Trump wanted to put his life in danger? Uh, did he? Did he? Um, did he not speak out sooner? as the insurrection was taking place, you know, some of these questions are impossible to answer. I do know that, you know, this constituted a break. Because remember, what Trump wanted Pence to do was to overturn the results of the election. Uh, they didn't have enough votes uh, to not accept the Electoral College certification that Joe Biden was the president-elect, and he wanted Mike Pence to do something that Mike Pence did not have the power to do. And so that's why Pence became such a central figure here, and we can all thank the bravery of some Capitol police officers as well as some lucky breaks that Romney and Pence and Schumer and Pelosi and all kinds of other members of Congress uh, weren't injured, weren't hurt, weren't massacred because this thing could have been so much worse. Um, And I don't know, you know, if I seem obsessed with impeachment, it's because it's really more of an obsession with what happened under the dome you know, the symbol of our national democracy uh, just over a month ago. I've been in that building so many times. And even for Americans who don't live and work in Washington or maybe have only visited the Capitol once or maybe have never visited the Capitol, you know, that dome, that is the symbol of American democracy. And when you look back, and that's the thing about this video that has been so compelling, is that a little time has passed and... You know, we've kind of gotten a settled narrative of what happened, and we understand that yes, it was a tragic, unfortunate, unforgivable that five people lost their lives, including a Capitol Police officer. But the way in which this takes you back and makes you realize, with a little bit of perspective over time, how unspeakably horrible this was, how uh, what a great moment of fear it was. You know, it's one thing, we were mostly watching real-time videos from outside the building as, you know, they used, as they broke the windows and stormed through the doors and the police were trying to hold the barricades and all of that. But the new footage from inside the Capitol is what I think has been so ghastly, so gripping, so uh, heart-wrenching, really. And that's why I think the Democrats have staged this, as I said at the top, as a TV show. All right, let's move on to some other things here. President Biden still has a pandemic on his hands. And yesterday, I mean, this is good news. Uh, He said the administration has now finalized deals for another 200 million doses of the two coronavirus vaccines, the Moderna one and the Pfizer one. And that, in the opinion of the 46th president, will give the country enough vaccine by the end of July to cover every American adult. Uh, Biden went over to NIH, National Institutes of Health, Uh, To make this speech, that was the big news. So, we had about 400 million doses committed. Remember, this is all theoretical at this point because these companies can only make the vaccine so fast, which is why the rollout has been an absolute frustrating, maddening fiasco in state after state after state. The way that uh, some of the governors and county health departments have handled this hasn't helped. It's just too decentralized, too many websites, too confusing, too many people make appointments and never hear back. Appointments have been canceled and all that. But at at the root of it, I mean, there's still a major distribution problem. Uh, At the root of it is not enough doses of these life-saving vaccines. And so, uh, as uh, one story I, I was looking at noted, this does nothing today, tomorrow, next week to expand the dose. It's about Preventing a shortfall over the spring and summer by increasing the supply by 50%, bringing the total to 600 million doses. Now, remember, everybody needs two doses. So 600 million doses, if that materializes, as it should, would mean that 300 million Americans would be covered. Now, that doesn't even mean that that many people will get the vaccine because some people are reluctant. Some people don't want it. Uh, which continues to amaze me, but I think that's public opinion on that is starting to shift. Uh, Anyway, I don't understand why this wasn't locked down earlier. I am very thankful and very grateful that these companies, and remember there are other companies also working on vaccines, have agreed to these contracts. Um, But they're staffed by human beings, and some of this stuff is hard to get, and then you have the distribution issues. So we have a long way to go uh, before enough Americans are, are vaccinated, I think, that we have turned the tide against COVID-19. But this is absolutely welcome news. Don't go anywhere. More Meter coming your way in just a moment. Uh, fascinating story in The New York Times, and I covered this at the time, which was when Donald Trump came down with COVID-19. Seems like a million years ago, of course. It was only last year. And... Um, the lead in the New York Times exclusive story is the following. President Donald Trump was sicker with COVID-19 in October, so it's only a few months ago, than publicly acknowledged at the time with extremely depressed blood oxygen levels at one point and a lung problem associated with pneumonia caused by the coronavirus, according to four people familiar with his condition. His prognosis became so worrisome before he was taken to Walter Reed that officials believed he would need to be put on a ventilator two of the people familiar with his condition said. Now, we already knew that the White House wasn't being totally straight about this. And one of the reasons I covered this heavily is I happened to be on the air with Media Buzz on the Sunday when um, Trump's personal physician gave that briefing were two briefings. Uh, there was one uh, the previous day, and I, I was on the air talking about that too, where everything was fine. The guy was in great shape. He didn't really answer many of the questions, but it was all fine. And then only the next day did we find out through some reporting, and also, you remember this? Mark Meadows, White House Chief of Staff, told reporters on background, you know, it was touch and go there for a while. Uh, he's not out of the woods yet. Completely contradicting the happy talk from the president's own physician. And then it turns out, you know, there had been x-rays or scans Uh, that showed um, a much more um, serious health condition than the White House and Trump himself wanted us to believe. I went through this once before. Uh, As a young reporter, I covered uh, the shooting of Ronald Reagan in 1981. And then, too, his condition it came out was much worse, and I was able to reach two paramedics who actually transported Uh, President Reagan to uh, George Washington University Hospital, who were able to reveal, contrary to the official statements, that he had lost a lot more blood than was being acknowledged at the time, This all was confirmed later. Anyway, back to Trump and the story. Uh, These sources said that uh, Trump was found to have lung infiltrates, which occur when the lungs are inflamed and contain substances such as fluid or bacteria. Yeah, it's serious stuff, folks. Uh, Their presence, especially when a patient is exhibiting other symptoms, can be a sign of an acute case of the disease. Remember, a lot of people get it and they seem fine. Remember also that Donald Trump had a fairly aggressive course of treatment, uh, and this is part of the reason why. Trump's blood oxygen level alone was cause for extreme concern, dipping into the 80s. According to these sources, the disease is considered severe when the blood oxygen level falls to the low 90s, says the New York Times. Now, we already knew that Trump was having trouble breathing uh, the day he was taken to the hospital, that he resisted going to the hospital. In fact, you know, his aides went to him and said, you can go now and walk out on your own. Or if it gets worse, the Secret Service will have to carry you out. And that made the decision. Um, Needless to say, I'm glad Donald Trump got better. It was awful to have the president of the United States coming down with COVID-19. There were some people who were like, oh, this is poetic justice because he played it down and he said we were turning the corner and it would vanish by April and it would be gone by the summer. But still, it was an awful thing to have the president in the hospital um, with this disease. And um, at the same time, there has to be some accountability for what actually happened. And sometimes it's easier as a journalist or as an historian to find out what happened when somebody's no longer in office. People may become a little bit more willing to be candid about that sort of thing. Another story I want to get to here as we move along in the podcast is new information about uh, Don McNeil Jr. He is the veteran science reporter, lead COVID reporter, in fact, or it was, at the New York Times, pushed out, resigned uh, after he went on that company-sponsored student trip and used the N-word. And by the way, he said other things on that trip, according to students who complained, Beyond using that racial slurry, they thought he was dismissive about, uh, spoke about black teenagers in a way that was dismissive, uh, that they believed that he had uh, said things that, that struck them as being white supremacy. That may or not be true, but that was their perception. So you recall uh, Dean McKay, the executive editor of the New York Times, uh, found out about this after a Daily Beast investigation, uh, looked into it came out, there was disciplinary action, we weren't told what it was, and he said, uh, I think Don McNeil deserves a second chance uh, because he didn't intend to be hateful. Then 150 newsroom staffers signed a letter saying this is outrageous. Under that pressure, uh, suddenly McNeil's gone, and McKay puts out a statement saying that uh, this is uh, using that kind of slur is unacceptable, regardless of intent. Well, now Dean McKay is walking back that second explanation. Uh, Here's what he said in a note to the staff. This was obtained by Mediaite. In our zeal to make a powerful statement about our workplace culture, we ham-handedly said something you rightfully saw as an oversimplification of one of the most difficult issues of our lives. It was a deadline mistake, and I regret it. Of course intent matters. We're talking about language and journalism, Becke says. Uh, The author and his purpose also matter. The moment matters. The slow we've been discussing is a vile one. I've been called it. Remember, Dean McKay is the first African-American executive editor of the New York Times. And so for him, this has to be very personal. And any time a racial issue comes up, um, you know, it it obviously, any Times editor would have to deal with it. But if you're the first black editor in the history of the New York Times, um, you have sensitivities that other people don't have. I've been called it, but it appears in our pages and will no doubt appear in our pages again. It should not be used for effect. It comes with a grim history, and it's a blow to the gut. So that actually makes a lot more sense to me. and has a lot more nuance. has a lot more context than the, you know, regardless of intent line, because intent matters. What if you're talking about the N-word, I'm not going to repeat it here, to denounce the N-word or to talk about how some black people feel... Uh, it's okay for them to jokingly use the N-word or whatever. But here's one last kicker to this story, and that is Brett Stevens, a uh, conservative columnist in the New York Times, wrote a piece about this. And the op-ed uh, columnists at the Times of extraordinary freedom. It's very, very unusual uh, for what they write to be killed. But it was killed in this case. And there was a report saying that the publisher, A.G. Sulzberger, had himself, and he has the right to do it, uh, spiked... Gret Stevens's column. Um, The paper came out and said, no, that's not true. It was Kathleen Kingsbury. She is the Times editorial page editor, replacing the one who was fired over the previous Times uh, insurrection. And AG supported her. So that's kind of a minor distinction. Uh, Here's the quote from the uh, source at the Times, speaking to media. Columns have to meet a publishing standard. When they don't, we don't run them. Most important, this was built around the idea of use of racist language regardless of intent. Kathleen knew Dean was going to clarify his position on that. And the column makes no sense in light of that. Well, you know what? That just means they didn't really want to be criticized because the boss said something that he had to take back. He could have delayed it a day. So guess what? The New York Post got a hold of the Spike column. I wonder how that happened. And I can read you a little bit of it, what Brett Stevens intended to publish in the pages of the New York Times. Um, it says the following. Do any of us want to live in a world or work in a field where intent is categorically ruled out as a mitigating factor? I hope not. That ought ought to go in journalism as much, or if not more, than any other profession. What is it that journalists do except to try to perceive intent, examine motive, furnish context, explore nuance, explain various shades of meaning, forgive fallibility, and make allowances for irony and humor? Uh, The Times has never been previously shy about citing racial slurs in order to explain a point. Here's a famous quote by Republican, the late Republican strategist Lee Atwater, appeared at least seven times in the Times, including most recently in 2019. And he uses the N-word in this quote um, to make a point that you couldn't say it anymore. Is that now supposed to be a scandal, says Brett Stevens? Uh, Because of the New York Post, we now know what he wrote. The Times decided not to publish it. A couple other things before we go. The president of the Tokyo Olympic Organizing Committee is out, Yoshiro Mori, he's a former prime minister of Japan, and listen to what he said. I, I know he's like in his 80s, but this is just off the charts if you haven't heard about this. Maury said that women have an annoying tendency and that board of directors meetings with many women take a lot of time. When you increase the number of female executive members, if their speaking time isn't restricted to a certain extent, they have difficulty finishing, which is annoying. Women are competitive. When one person raises a hand, others think they need to speak up as well. That's why everyone speaks. So this guy says, women talk too much. And it took a couple of days. He's like, OK, I'm out of here. I resigned. I, it was a mistake. I shouldn't have said it. How, did How does a guy who is the leader of the country, so he must not be a blithering idiot, although he sounds like one here, uh, insult the women of the globe and expect to remain the head of the Olympic Committee. And by the way, there's a lot of question about whether the Olympics, you know, because of COVID will actually, having already been delayed from last year, will be played this year in Tokyo, or whether Japan will lose the games entirely. This, I am going to go out on a limb and say, did not help. And finally, Bruce Springsteen, I meant to get to this. Uh, you might, if you watch the Super Bowl and the commercials, um, the boss did a commercial for Jeep um, a lot of people didn't like the commercial, thought it was kind of a sellout. It is kind of hard to imagine Bruce Springsteen, the man who was born to run, um, you know, doing a car ad, but probably paid him a lot of money. Uh, I, You know, I wasn't particularly upset about it, whether he liked the ad, whether he didn't like the ad. But then, a couple of days later, it came out that Bruce Springsteen had been arrested for a DWI. And so Jeep then deleted the ad from YouTube or wherever it was running online. So, you know, we don't want to be associated with this guy now because he got pulled over for drunk driving. And, you know, Springsteen, whose very identity is so closely identified with Jersey, the place he grew up, What was his first album called? Was his first album, Greetings from Raspberry Park? There's um, <laughs> a cop give him a ticket after realizing it's Bruce Springsteen. But then another thing comes out that he didn't actually have anywhere near the blood alcohol level needed to be charged with a DWI, according to New Jersey law. And this was a news story, not gossip. uh, You have to have a 0.8. I don't know if it's 0.8 or 0.08. I may be mangling the figures. And he only had a 0.2. And nevertheless, he got charged, and now his ad has been taken off. So I don't know. I think we need a special prosecutor to find out what happened to Bruce, right? This guy's an American icon, born in the USA, All right. Hope you folks have a great weekend. Hope you have a chance to watch Media Buzz. Uh, We'll be uh, coming back after the weekend to wrap up or tell you what's still going on with the impeachment trial, but you can get the latest update. Uh, And I think we'll come on Sunday, about two hours before the Sunday session of impeachment, which could be the day of the vote, or Monday could be the day of the vote. Uh, Thank you for listening. Remember, Apple, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or on your Amazon device.